uh, by saying thank you for being here. And the subject matter that we're going to be considering this afternoon is obviously significant and sober material on the one hand. And if there's one takeaway from today that the pastors of CBC want you to have, it is this, that church discipline is a tool of God's love and protection in order to keep his people. God's church discipline is a tool of God's love and protection for the good of his people that we might be kept unto salvation. So have that in your minds. Let me just ask, I'm going to open this in prayer here in just a minute. Let me ask this question, show of hands. So this is the participatory part before the Q&A. How many people have been in a church context where you have seen church discipline practiced? Okay, a, a number. Okay. How many people have come from a situation, a church context where like, bro, I have never heard a church talk about discipline. Okay. Helpful. Helpful for me. Very good. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to begin our time pointedly together. And I'll give you the plan for the next hour or so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day you've given. Thank you for the ordinary means of grace that we have gotten to partake of already today. We pray that you would continue to use your word, your table, and prayer and song in our minds and hearts as we go about the rest of our week. Sustain us, we pray. And we ask for your spirit to be with us now and minister to us in this time where we get to pointedly from your scriptures and from the history of your church, consider church discipline, what it's for, why you've given it, and how it's been practiced. We pray that this would be a good time and a sweet time, albeit a sober time. And we pray that it would continue to be Uh, something that this time would be something that knits our hearts together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, we ask. We are not able for these things. Give us your grace, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our plan for this afternoon is a pastoral address on church discipline. Uh, Just a few disclaimers and some clarity out of the gate. This is a talk in general, about church discipline from the scriptures, as well as an opportunity for the elders to lay out some protocol for church discipline that we have been working to put together for some time. This is not a time where we will be addressing particular matters of pastoral care in the history of our church or in the current life of our church, just to be clear. Not at all what we're doing today. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, great. We would only do such a thing in a meeting of the members. This would not be an open meeting if we were dealing with a matter such as that. I trust that's intuitive to many, but just to be clear. All right, so the plan for this afternoon is this. Three parts. This is me, preacher mode, right? Outline. Part one, I'm going to give a a talk on church discipline. And that will be, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes long, probably. Part two, I am going on behalf of the pastors to present to you the document that I think you have in your hands, which is church discipline protocol for the elders and congregation of CBC. Don't worry about reading through that right now. We're going to read through every word of it together. I'm going to talk us through it. That's part two. Part three is going to be an open Q&A with the elders. So Mackenzie and Rob will join me up here on the stage. We'll probably take a brief intermission, set up some chairs, and we'll let you ask us questions that you may have that are of a general interest, and we'll do that until it seems like we should leave and go home. All right. So we'll get on with part number one, just my address to you on church discipline. As I've already said, I'm going to restate my goal in this time on behalf of the pastors of Covenant Baptist Church is to communicate the fact that church discipline is biblical, that it is a tool of God's loving discipline in our lives, and to convey 
the hearts of your pastors in church discipline. By way of introduction, you gave a show of hands a minute ago that was helpful in terms of how many of you came from a context where you've never even heard church discipline talked about. It's not surprising in our day that many have not even heard the term. Church discipline is something that has been historically practiced. Since the Reformation, Reformed churches have maintained that the marks of a true church are these, the right preaching of the Word of God, the right administration of the sacraments, and the practice of biblical discipline. So for hundreds of years, that has been viewed as a mark of a true church, that biblical discipline is practiced. While discipline has been historically practiced, it's not so much practiced anymore. There's been a significant decline over the last 200 years or so in the practice of church discipline amongst Protestant churches. And I think it's clear as you survey history that the denominations represented in the Protestant tradition, right, as you look at them, theological decline in a general sense and neglect of church discipline go hand in hand. So there's been a lot of a theological downgrade over the last couple hundred years amongst Protestant churches in the States. And along with that, correlated to that, is a decline in the practice of biblical discipline. So for many of us, we've already acknowledged this. We've never seen it done before. We've never been a part of a church that practices church discipline. And for some of us, there were a number of hands that went up in the room, said, I have seen it practiced. For some of us, when we've seen it done, we've had real questions about whether it was done well. Perhaps it's been abusive in the way that it's been carried out. Church discipline, just the term itself, I mean, McKenzie kind of alluded to this earlier before the service in the announcement time. It's kind of a scary word. It's like, church what? Like, how do, how do I understand this? It sounds unloving, and it sounds uncharitable. And why would we, as people of love and grace, ever do such a thing? All right, so the first million-dollar question is, is church discipline in the Bible? Answer is yes, it is in the Scripture. We're going to consider two passages in brief, and if you have a Bible with you, you might be helped to look at it. We don't need to worry about getting these verses on the screen. Uh, first, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, most pointedly. Is church discipline in the Bible? Yes. Matthew's gospel, the words of our Lord Jesus while he was on earth. I'm just going to read these three verses and comment. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector few comments on this. Jesus here is not laying out like the three-step plan that you, all right, you go once to the person, it doesn't work. You go a second time and with multiple people, it doesn't work. We take it to the church, all right, it doesn't work, then, and we're done here. And it happens like that. What he's laying out for us is the pattern, though, of reasonableness that squares with the rest of the Bible in terms of how we would handle such things. When people commit sins and transgressions against us or just against God or against the body of Christ, we go one-on-one -on -one to address such a thing. And we confront that in a loving way and say, hey, brother, sister, you've done this, let's talk about it. If 
after a period of time, that kind of one-on-one interaction is not useful. It is entirely right, biblical, and reasonable that we would do it in a group setting. The scriptures over and over again use this language and establish a pattern of multiple witnesses being there to establish a charge against a person. So we do that. We go with multiple people to the offender or potential offender, and we talk. If that is not useful over a period of time, then what Christ says is you need to take this to the church, to the assembly, and the assembly needs to speak into such a matter. And there are ways in which we would go about doing that. We'll talk more about the particulars of the execution later, and you can ask questions even about it. But the pattern of biblical church discipline, of taking matters of sin to the congregation and having the congregation make a determination on how this needs to go is a biblical pattern. There is biblical warrant for it from the words of Jesus himself. The next passage that we're going to survey briefly this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I alluded to this passage in the sermon this morning, um, but I'm going to just survey it again for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to be turning there in my, scar- in my copy of the scriptures just like you. I'm just going to read it and comment again. I may comment as we go just because there are a number of verses here. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, his stepmother, right? And you are arrogant. We thought about that this morning. Ought you not rather to mourn? So there should be grief in the church over heinous sin like this. Not arrogance in presuming that this is good or even okay. Let him who has done this be removed from you. So he's going to unpack what he means. A person that engages in heinous sin like this should be removed. Here we go. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Remember, he's an apostle who is used uniquely in the redemptive history of God's people to help start churches. Though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Just a few comments here. Notice here the goal of all discipline. The goal of church discipline is the restoration of the individual. Even this harsh-sounding language where Paul says, you need to hand this man over to Satan, the goal is restoration so that he might be saved. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. You boasting that freedom in Christ would permit such a thing to go on because of grace, right? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Biblical principle. You don't want to allow this kind of evil to fester in your midst. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. There he goes again, pointing them to their identity in the Lord Jesus. And in light of that union with Christ, you need to purge this from your midst. It's for the protection of the body of Christ. It's for your protection. So there's another reason we practice discipline. The restoration of the individual, but the protection of the saints moving forward. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we're going to live together in sincerity and truth. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, this is important, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. But then he encourages them yet again, purge the evil person from among you. Important distinctions to be made here. We have no standing, no prerogative whatsoever to pass judgment on people outside of our congregation. So when we're talking about these things, we're dealing completely with things that are a part of our fellowship, people who have become covenant members of Covenant Baptist Church and who have said, I want to submit to the doctrine and the disciplines of CBC. We, as that group of people, are going to seek to live this way, and we need to watch over one another. Our prerogative is not to watch over the world or to disassociate from immoral people in the world, because as like Paul says, that would mean we just need to withdraw from the world altogether. What we are called to do is when people are in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin, we are to confront that, and if the individual remains impenitent, we are to remove said person. That's the pretty simple, straightforward understanding of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to move on and make a few comments now about our posture as pastors. So Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 is a wonderful verse for us all to have in our minds when we think about confronting sin or when we think about restoring people. Paul uses the language in Galatians 6, 1, that when a brother is caught in sin, when he is ensnared in sin, Those of you who are spiritual should seek to restore him with a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted or lest you too fall. So we want to be, as we pursue people who may be living in sin, who might be living in unrepentant sin, we want to be gracious, we want to be humble, patient, and mindful of our own frames that were it not for the grace of God, there go we. And that needs to inform our posture and how we think about these things as a congregation. And we seek as pastors to have that same posture among ourselves. So what this means is that when it comes to church discipline, formally practiced in the church, we want to be patient and take our time in doing so. We do not ever want to rush the process. We don't want to be hasty in practicing discipline, especially not if it ends up in the removal from, of a person from our fellowship. Why, in addition to Galatians 6 and just that general consideration, why in addition would we seek to be patient and take our time? Well, from our perspective as pastors, church discipline is not a blunt instrument we use to bludgeon people with. It is not a tool that we use to threaten people with. Church discipline, rather, is a precision instrument. Think of it like a scalpel, and we wield it very carefully. So just a pastoral comment to you. There may be times for some among our number that it seems like the elders are just dragging their feet in a discipline case. Like why you're aware of things and you're like, why is this taking so long? As is always the case, there are are probably three things that you're aware of and there are dozens of things that you're not. That's always true. We need to just all be humble about that. But If you ever feel that way, like, why is this taking so long? And why do the pastors seem to be dragging their feet here? Ever feel that way? Just come talk with us. We are happy to meet with you and discuss anything that you would like to talk about. But we, for our part, as the elders of Covenant Baptist Church, are going to trust patience and gentleness over the long haul of this church's life to bear good fruit. 
That's just a general thing that we aim to do as elders, and that certainly would include how we go about practicing discipline. Next section, just a few comments here. We're going to get into these in more detail when we go through the protocol document. I want to talk about formal church censures or measures of church discipline that we would implement. So these censures that I'm about to outline are the measures of discipline reformed churches of various streams have used for hundreds of years. And like I said, we're going to talk more about these in a moment. The scriptures, this is important, the scriptures seem to indicate that there are more than two speeds, like more than two gears in the gearbox when it comes to our standing in the church. There's more than the gear of good standing and excommunicated. Like there's, a, there's stuff in between those. And so even the way that we would practice discipline and censures that we would administer need to mirror that reality. We don't want to rip the transmission out of the thing by only having two speeds. So, for example, if you wanted to reference 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, you're going to see language there that is different than the language of Matthew 18 or is different than the language of 1 Corinthians 5, different even than the language of Titus about having nothing to do with such people who are divisive, right? There's the language of 1 Corinthians 11 regarding how we should take the Lord's table. So all of that is in view here. The first of three church censures that we will seek to administer with wisdom going in order of least severe to most severe. The first is formal admonishment. So admonishment from the pastors to a congregant. This would most likely, in a formal sense, come in a letter from us or in a meeting that we've called with an individual to say, we are concerned for this in your life. Second censure from the elders would be like suspension, temporary suspension from the Lord's table. The pastors are saying to you, based upon this pattern in your life and unrepentance, etc., it seems best that you refrain from coming to the table for a period of time. That's censure number two. Censure number three, the most severe, is excommunication. This would mean not only is an individual not permitted to the table, but this would also mean that an individual is removed from the fellowship wholesale. This person is no longer considered to be one of us. This would be led by the elders, excommunication would be led by the elders, but affirmed by the congregation. So in our polity, so polity meaning how we govern ourselves, we are an elder-led, congregationally governed church. What that means is that the elders lead in all things, but in matters of membership and doctrine, the church together, the elders and the congregation affirm that corporately. So the elders may recommend a particular course of action with respect to an individual and excommunication, but the elders do not have unilateral authority to excommunicate anyone. The church together would need to decide that matter. Does that make sense? Great. So again, we see this pattern in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 2, where it's, the language is not simply to take the matter of discipline to the elders, but they are to take the matter of discipline to the ecclesia, to the assembly. So we all do this. We all take part in the censure of excommunication. And the public nature of this, saints, while it's uncomfortable for our modern sensibilities, this is a biblical thing, that it would be public amongst the family of the church, not public to the world. 
This is part of, like we even thought about in God's providence this morning, part of us watching over one another. We take members in together as a congregation in members meetings. We put members out together. All right, moving forward. Question. What is it that would bring about excommunication, this most significant censure of the church? What would bring it about? Several things. These words matter. The kind of sin that would bring about excommunication is characterized by the following. It is unrepentant or impenitent, right? The person in question is either not agreeing with God that what they're doing is even sin in the first place when the Bible is clear or our confession is clear, or the person is engaging in it and saying, yeah, like, I don't so much care what the scriptures say or what the pastors say or what the church says, I'm going to do this. It is also not, it's not just unrepentant or impenitent sin, but it is also clear, demonstrable, and verifiable sin. This matters a lot. We're not going to excommunicate somebody as a congregation based upon something that cannot be demonstrated and verified clearly, either via testimony or obvious evidence, right? Next, it would be sin that is obstinate, meaning it is stubborn and persistent. Like this doesn't just happen over the period of two weeks or even two months. This is a pattern of living. Next, it is sin that is heinous. So there may be certain sins that are so heinous in nature that it becomes obvious to everyone like this is necessary given what's happened. Next, individuals who are incorrigible, and I'll define what that means, would be subject to excommunication. To be incorrigible means that you can't be dealt with that you refuse to accept any correction. An individual like that would be liable to face the discipline of the church. Next, here's another old word that I will define. Sin that is contumacious would be liable to excommunication. What does contumacious mean? It is an old word that churches have used to describe stubborn, willful rebellion and a refusal to cooperate with the pastors and the authority of the church. So, Again, you see situations like this sometimes where individuals almost will hold the church hostage because they refuse to cooperate in a, pro- in a process of discipline. And this is something that churches of a reformed ilk have excommunicated people for for centuries. So all of those things, unrepentant, clear, demonstrable, verifiable, obstinate, heinous, incorrigible, contumacious is the kind of sin that leads to excommunication. Along this vein, just a few more comments by way of clarity. Some of the things that would be in view here, if we're going to be talking about something like excommunication, it would be a violation of God's moral law. Something that's very clear in the moral law of God. You have violated it. Or a violation of another clear command or prohibition of Scripture. A violation of the doctrine or the Christian conduct clearly delineated in our confession of faith. Those kinds of things would be in view. So in other words, saints, don't misunderstand this. The things that a person would be excommunicated for are not obscure. They're not outlandish. They're not trivial. They're clear. They are significant. And we as a congregation would practice this because we are agreeing together as a church that we will live in a way that the scripture outlines and the tradition of Christian orthodoxy outlines for us. Next, I want to reiterate briefly the goal of all discipline, especially excommunication, 
The goal, as we've stated, just want to reiterate, is salvation, not destruction of the person's soul. Not destruction, but restoration. Excommunication has been referred to by Christians for centuries as the last remedy for the recovery of the offender. It's the last tool that we have in our tool belt to try to rescue someone. A secondary goal of discipline, as we've already alluded to, is the protection of the church. It also, discipline is a caution to other Christians. As you see this occur in in your midst, our midst, you are sobered and you think, man, I, I don't want that to be me. Church discipline is also practiced for the sake of the corporate witness of the church. And finally, for the honor of Christ. Let me read you this quote from a document from the Presbyterian Church in America. Quote, excommunication is only to be inflicted on account of gross crime or heresy, and when the offender shows no signs of true repentance and refuses to work with the elders. The design of this final step is to reclaim the sinner and hopefully welcome welcome them back to the church one day with tears of joy, close quote. Last bit of my address here, nearly done. These are significant questions in particular when it comes to the excommunication piece, because this is the one that people get most hung up on. If excommunication occurs via the leadership and recommendation of the pastors and the affirmation of the congregation, what are we saying about this individual and what are we not saying? That's important. First of all, what we are not saying when practicing excommunication We are not pronouncing that the individual in question is not a Christian. Only God knows that. We also are not saying that the book is written on this individual, like that it's over. The Lord, we hope, is going to restore this person. That always needs to be in view. What are we saying then when we practice excommunication? We are saying that an individual is living in hard-hearted, unrepentant sin, We are saying that an individual is living in disregard for the word of God. And we are saying that this hard-heartedness, this impenitence, and this disregard for God's word will destroy the individual's soul unless they repent. That's what we're saying. It's a big deal, but we are not presuming to be God, to know the hearts of men and women. Church discipline, again, rightly understood, is a tool of God's loving discipline and care and protection of his people. So, all that by way of part one. What I would like to do now is transition us to part two, where we're going to consider together the protocol document that the elders have been working on for quite some time, that we as elders have adopted for our own use, and we'll consider how we may adopt it or not formally as a congregation. Before you begin to read through the the document itself, just listen to me for a moment. So, yeah, this is like when you're a teacher, eyes up here, right? So I want to make a few comments by way of an introduction just to be really clear about what these protocol are for, the purpose and value of them. So the protocol that we're going to go through applies once formal process of church discipline begins. Let me reiterate. The protocol we're going to look at applies once the formal process of church discipline begins. That is important because the ongoing organic Just watching over and caring for people is going to continue to happen as it always has. So that's clear. The only thing that we are doing with this protocol 
is trying to be clear and outline in detail what we all can expect to go down and how it will be practiced once formal process commences. Everything that we're going to be looking at today is sourced from historical reformed documents and practice, both of a Baptist and Presbyterian stream. So just like everything else at CBC, what we're going to be looking at today is not new. Like we didn't come up with it. This is, I hope this is clear, this protocol is for everyone's protection. So it's for the protection of the congregation, it is for the protection of the pastors, and perhaps most importantly, it is for the protection of the accused, because everyone receives due process. We are seeking to clearly outline protocol once the formal process of church discipline begins for the sake of clarity and for the sake of protection. Just want to reiterate that. Because whenever you're clear on things, there's safety there. Whenever there's ambiguity, it's not as safe. So it's for the protection of the congregation, protection of the pastors, and protection for the accused. So to be clear, still, last comment before we look at the document. Once the process of church discipline has formally commenced, the hope is still the same. It's repentance, restoration. That's still the goal, always. It need not, even once formal process commences, the situation in question need not end in church censure. It certainly need not end in excommunication, just to be clear. So it's not like, well, process has been commenced and the ball's rolling downhill and we're not going to stop it. No, the goal is restoration. Okay. So with all that by way of introduction, let's look to the document together. I'm going to read the words that are on the page and comment as I think I need to comment if you have questions, write them down, and we'll ask them in the Q&A time. Section 1, commencement of process, 1.1. It is the duty of any godly elders to exercise care over those subject to their authority. They shall, with due diligence and great discretion, demand from church members satisfactory explanations concerning reports affecting their Christian conduct. 1.2. Process against an offender shall not be commenced unless a member or members undertake to make out the charge, or unless the elders find it necessary for the honor of religion itself to commence process on the basis of investigation or the public nature of an act or acts committed as outlined in 1.3 and 1.4 below. 1.3. Due diligence and discretion are imperative when accused parties deem themselves aggrieved by injurious reports and ask for an investigation. If such investigation, however originating, should result in raising a strong presumption of the guilt of the party involved, the elders shall commence process. 1.4. Some acts are of an inherently public nature. In such cases, it is appropriate for the elders to commence process. And then finally, 1.5, process will formally commence once the elders issue a citation as outlined in 4.1 and 4.2 below. So all that first paragraph, all that first uh, section is trying to outline is, first of all, the duty of pastors that we borrowed straight from documents. But then it is that we would need multiple witnesses to substantiate a charge. Or if there's a cause like for an investigation, people are raising something that needs to be looked into, we would investigate the matter. And if there's enough evidence on the basis of investigation, we may commence process. Or lastly, maybe it's a heinous act that's inherently public and it's verifiable and needs to be dealt with and process needs to commence. So that's all that's saying. And 1.5 is important. 
Process formally commences when the elders would issue a citation, which we will talk about in a moment. Section two, an ecclesiastical court and congregational polity. So what we're talking about here is the fact that we are an elder-led, congregationally governed church, and yet the elders, via the nature of the ordained office, function in one sense as an ecclesiastical court via proxy that then reports to the congregation. So let's read it together. 2.1, given that the elders have been ordained by the congregation with authority to shepherd and oversee the flock of God at Covenant Baptist Church, the elders serve as an ecclesiastical court via proxy. The findings and or rulings of the elders in matters of excommunication are subject to the approval of the congregation via majority vote in an appropriately scheduled meeting of the members. So that again reiterates what we talked about a minute ago, that the elders have no authority whatsoever to excommunicate people. All we have the, the authority to do given to us by you is to preside over hearings, to receive testimonies and establish a judgment and bring it to you and allow you then to examine that. And then we together determine a course of action. 2.2, in cases that are particularly difficult, potentially divisive, or public in nature, the elders may deem it appropriate for ecclesiastical court proceedings to be held in specially called meetings of the members. So what this is here for is in the case of something that like described, it's really hard, it's maybe divisive, there's accusation, there's slander, there's lots of things, or it's just public in the nature of the thing, instead of having meetings to take testimony in a more private setting, we may do everything in front of the members of CBC, just so that everybody can see it and everybody is privy to it. That would be in rare cases. That would be the exception, not the norm. But that's what 2.2 is there for. Section three, church censures. We've already talked about this a little bit, so we'll go through this relatively briefly. Admonishment. Admonishment is the lowest degree of church censure. It is the formal reproof of a member by the elders, warning him of peril in particular matters or patterns of behavior, and exhorting him to greater awareness and vigilance. Of course, there's all kinds of informal admonishment that goes on, not just between the elders and congregants, but between all of us, right? We just live together that way, so that's just ongoing. This is a more formal thing where the pastors with pastoral authority mean to speak into a person's life. 3.2. Suspension from the Lord's table. Indefinite suspension from the Lord's table is a censure issued by the elders to an offending member who is remaining impenitent in an ongoing case of discipline or matter of pastoral care. Note, individuals who are temporarily suspended from the Lord's table shall also have their voting privileges temporarily suspended. So that just means they would not cast votes in a member's meeting. Cases to which this censure is applicable. Those not past the reasonable point of restoration those not demonstrable enough to merit excommunication, those not heinous enough to merit excommunication, or those that have not gone on long enough to merit excommunication. The censure of temporary suspension from the table could culminate in excommunication should the member in question continue to double down on his sin, continue to remain impenitent, and or begin to demonstrate contumacious behavior. Members who receive this censure from the elders are not removed from the fellowship of the saints. This is important. They are to be warned as brothers, 2 Thessalonians 3. See also 1 Corinthians 11 in the section on how sober we should be in cases of just disregard for the body of Christ in coming to the Lord's table. 3.3, excommunication. Excommunication is the highest degree of church censure. 
Excommunication is issued by the church under the leadership of the elders and via the affirmation of the congregation in a meeting of the members. Excommunication is the removal of an impenitent member, not only from the Lord's table, but also from the fellowship of the saints in the church. Such a person is put out of the church for the purposes of his restoration as a caution to others for the sake of the corporate witness of the church and for the sake of the honor of Christ. This censure is reserved for impenitent persons who have committed heinous sins, for example, against the moral law, who have engaged in heresy and or who have shown themselves to be incorrigible and contumacious. Again, you can't be dealt with. You can't be talked to. You are just in rebellion against the authority of the church. Section four, citation. Once the first citation to appear before the elders is issued, formal process has been initiated with respect to the accused and potential church discipline. 4.2, in every instance of citation, the accused party is to be given not less than 14 days to appear before the elders. So let me just explain briefly what this means. A citation from the elders of this nature would come in a very formal way. It would come on church letterhead, from the pastor's email to you, you would be messaged about it, etc. So it's not going to be mysterious. It's going to be very clear. Here's the matter at hand. We're asking you to come meet with us. This is what's going on. And the reason that we have the language in there about the accused party is not to be given less than 14 days is to protect the accused. We can't issue you a citation and then it's like, say, well, we're going to, it's, it's Tuesday and we're going to meet Friday, you know, and then you don't show. And now we're moving on towards potential discipline because you're being stubborn. We're trying to protect people in that, to give at least two weeks for a person to appear, a date agreed upon, right? Section five, meetings of the court, 5.1. At the first meeting of the court, and the court, again, remember, would be the, the elders acting as such on behalf of the church, the concerns and or charges are to be communicated to the accused party. Should the accused confess, the elders shall deal with him according to discretion. Should the accused not confess and take issue, a hearing shall be scheduled and all parties and their witnesses cited to appear. The hearing shall not be scheduled less than 14 days from the first meeting of the court. So that first conversation, if you're cited to meet with the elders, is simply to raise the issue pointedly to you and then allow the accused party an opportunity to respond. Well, here's, here's what it is. Like, I, I didn't do this. Or, uh, no, I am guilty of that, and I'm, and I'm remorseful and repentant over it, etc. And we deal with that according to discretion. If hearings need to be had to take testimony and, and have witnesses present, etc., then we would do that at a subsequent time. Again, not less than 14 days from the first meeting to give people opportunity. 5.2, subsequent meetings of the court will be hearings in which testimonies will be heard and weighed to the end of making a determination in the case. Section 6, general principles for hearings. In order that the trial may be fair and impartial, the witnesses shall be examined in the presence of the accused, or at least after he shall have received due citation to attend. In other words, we're not going to take testimony from people about a person without the individual present. Wouldn't do that. Or at a minimum, what we would, we would require of ourselves is, we've all agreed that the meeting is on this day. We're meeting on this day at this time for a hearing. And if the accused doesn't show up, that's his prerogative. But we allow for this so that nobody is being accused without being present and being given that opportunity. 6.2, 
Either party may, for cause, challenge the right of any elder to sit in the trial of the case, which question shall be decided by the other elders. For example, let's say right now there's a discipline case that we would hypothetically hear, and the individual accused is like, well, I don't think that Justin Perdue should sit on the council because there's a conflict of interest here, or there's a close personal relationship here, or there's something here that would make him really, it would, it would really hinder him in being objective. He wouldn't be able to hear it, et cetera. I'm just not comfortable you know, whatever. That would be something that can be presented with cause that the other elders would then weigh and determine, yeah, that seems right that Justin wouldn't sit in on this hearing. So that's there for us. 6.3. The testimony of more than one witness shall be necessary in order to establish any charge. That's just straight biblical principle. Yet, if in addition to the testimony of one witness, corroborative evidence be produced, the offense may be considered to be proved. So this would be something like an individual raises a charge against another member and there's like just tons of like social media documentation that this thing happened or there's other evidence that's presented that this did in fact occur. There's documents produced, etc., where it's verifiable that this occurred. 6.4. Minutes shall be taken for each hearing for obvious reason. We're going to take record of what's said. Section 7, contumacy. So here's where we're going to think about this word. It's an old word. It's a useful word. 7.1. Contumacy is a historical term describing a stubborn and rebellious posture. In the context of the local church, a contumacious person is one who is stubborn, rebellious, and unwilling to submit to the authority of the elders and despises the authority of the church. 7.2. When an accused person shall refuse to obey a citation, he shall be cited a second time, meaning we cite you to come appear before the pastors to talk about a matter, and you refuse to come the first time. A second citation shall be issued, and that second citation will be accompanied with a notice that if the individual still refuses to appear, given plenty of time to show up unless providentially hindered, which fact he must make known to the elders, he shall be liable to discipline for his contumacy. Not required to be disciplined, but liable to that discipline. So this is a process in place, not at all unique to CBC. Churches have done this. The PCA still does this just like this. And I've, I've talked with PCA pastors here in the city, and they're like, yeah, brother, this is what we do. Um, this is in place to give the pastors the ability and the church the ability to move forward in a case of discipline if a person is just utterly unwilling to cooperate. Yeah, 7.3. When an accused person shall appear and refuse to plead or otherwise refuse to cooperate with lawful proceedings, he shall be liable to discipline for his contumacy. So this means that if you were to come and meet or you were to come to the hearing, but the posture is just one of complete and utter, like I'm just not even going to engage and I'm not going to cooperate, the same thing would still apply. Section 8, this is the last one. All God's people said amen. 8.1. So, excuse me, Section 8, Cases Without Process. 8.1, Irregular Attempts at Resignation of Membership. When a member shall attempt to withdraw from the communion of this local church by affiliating with some other local church without appropriately communicating that to the elders, if at the time of the attempt to withdraw he is in good standing, the irregularity shall be recorded, his new membership acknowledged, and his name removed from the roll. But if at the time of the attempt to withdraw, there is a record of the discipline process commenced, in other words, a citation has been issued, the elders may retain the name of the member on the roll and conduct the case. 
communicating the outcome upon completion of the proceedings to the member. If the elders do not conduct the case, his new membership shall be acknowledged, his name removed from the roll, and at the request of the receiving church, the matters under investigation or the charges shall be communicated to them. So this is just a way for us, if people are trying to resign membership to avoid discipline cases going forward, this is a way to deal with that. 8.2, willful neglect and or non-attendance. This, this right here is going to be helpful for our congregation because we've had to deal with this over and over again, as some of the longer time members know. When a member of the church has willfully neglected the church for a period of six months, or has made it known that he has no intention of fulfilling the church vows, as outlined in the church covenant, then the elders, continuing to exercise pastoral discipline in the spirit of Galatians 6.1, shall remind the member, if possible, both in person and in writing, of the declarations and promises by which he entered into a solemn covenant with God and his church, and warn him that if he persists, his name shall be erased from the roll. Now, we've not had this occur. Please don't misunderstand what I said a minute ago. I realize this could be really misconstrued. I don't mean we've had that happen a lot. The next one we have. But this is still good because, in other words, if you are just not present at all for six months, and we don't see you, we don't hear from you, don't know where you are, don't know what you're doing, we at that point are triggered to reach out. And if there's no response and there's no interchange as to what the individual is doing, that person will be removed from the role, not excommunicated, but removed from the role as an act of pastoral discipline, and CBC will move forward. 8.2, next paragraph. If, after diligently pursuing such pastoral discipline, and after further inquiry and due delay, the elders are of the judgment that the member will not fulfill his membership obligations in this or any other local church, then the elders shall erase his name from the role. This erasure is an act of pastoral discipline without process. The elders shall notify the person, if possible, whose name has been removed. Note, this is also applicable to those who have moved away and neglect to associate with another gospel preaching church or just fail to communicate with us altogether. Like it's just radio silence. We have no idea. We will not be keeping people on the rolls in perpetuity. We're not going to have an individual on the rolls for 18 months after they've left our assembly just because we don't know where they are or where they're going. It will be an act of pastoral discipline. We will remove said person who is completely unresponsive and not communicative. Final bullet. Notwithstanding the above, if a member thus warned makes a request for process, the elders shall grant such a request. Meaning if the individual responds and says, no, I don't think I should be removed from the membership of CBC and here's why, then we'll absolutely hear that. Further, if the elders determine that any offense of such a member is of a nature that process is necessary, the elders may institute such process. In other words, if a person is still a member of CBC, though out of the area or just not attending anymore, and there is evidence and testimony that things are going on in their lives, the elders would reserve the right to initiate process and pursue church discipline if that's what seemed necessary. So, in other words, also non-attendance is not a method of avoiding the discipline of the church, right? Just final notes there, document source for those who are interested. A summary of church discipline from 1774 by the Charleston Association, fantastic document, really good. Like I was reading it, I'd read it before and was doing research in it again for this, for this document and just was like, man, this is good. The Glory of a True Church and Its Discipline Displayed, 1697 by Benjamin Keach. 
a short treatise concerning a true and orderly gospel church, 1743, by Benjamin Griffith. And by a short treatise, we mean like 50 pages, right? So those are all three just confessional Baptist documents. And then finally, just via some PCA pastor friends, they were able to give me a, the most updated copy of the Book of Church Order of the PCA as another source just for process, protocol, etc. So that's what all of this is sourced from. Basically, the only thing that is our own words is just filler stuff to connect things or notes that we've inserted. Other than that, this is really just copy and paste from very old documents. And we as elders are encouraged to have the protocol in place, and we believe that it's going to be clear moving forward. It's for everybody's protection and safety, and so we're glad to have it. And, yeah, that's where we are. So now we're going to take a brief intermission, just enough time for us to get three chairs put up here. Um, for Mackenzie and Rob and myself. And then what we'll do is take questions from you guys, any questions you have about this material of a general nature, and we'll do that as long as it seems good. So exhale for a minute. I'm going to do the same. We'll be right back with you. I'm going to make a comment or two and read a piece from Jonathan Lehman on church discipline. But uh, first of all, this has everything to do with the you know, safety that's found in the church. Um, the protection of those who, yeah, are running out into sin and also the protection of those who are in the church. Um, just a few things, like Justin said, that we're reading, like we're, we're hearing and understanding from Jude. Once someone has desired that I want this more than I care about what God's word said, uh, and they run off into sin, uh, that's kind of the issue here. Anybody you find in sin, it's because they want it and they don't care ultimately, what the Word of God has said. doesn't mean that they don't trust Christ, but pertaining to said issue, uh, they could care less. They want to do this more. Um, and this is kind of along with, uh, you know, the definition, the world's definition of love, right? It's either a, a feel-good thing, like when you meet someone that you're going to be with forever, or it's just like, hey, man, you know, to, to, to follow this fire within, you know, love doesn't judge. Love doesn't tell me that I'm wrong. Love doesn't tell me that I, this isn't okay. Love just never restricts me. That's the world's definition of love. Uh, and as the Word of God tells us, that is not the definition of love. Um, God is love. And in fact, He's given us His, given us his law to, to show us that we're not right. And then to put a new heart within us that loves His law. That's love. And so really, you know, when it comes to church discipline, we're looking at a person who's chasing his desires and wants, to, wants that to be fine. And we're actually saying, no, 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 you need to come back to love, which is God. You need to come back to God. Um, and uh, because he's trustworthy, yeah. because he's told us what to do, right? Uh, and then also just a few more things here um, in terms of church discipline in, in the process, in the due process. It should really never get to the pastor's. It should never get past one or two people. We protect one another, right? So we, this is kind of an, an encouragement and an, uh, you know, I'm imploring all of us. Yeah, I'm exhorting all of us to build relationships. Build relationships in the church because trust is built in conversational honesty and humility, right? So we want to be people who can be corrected. We must work. You and I must work to be people who can be corrected by one another. And also, um, yeah, it won't go well if we don't do this. It will not go well for us if we can't be people who can correct one another and express concern. And so uh, seek to be known and seek to know other people. 
Like, let's do this stuff. Uh, and, you know, invite feedback, confess sin, risk uh, misunderstanding, risk embarrassment, embrace the awkwardness, uh, you know, embrace each other, encourage one another in Christ. Um, and when it comes to an issue that you have with someone, start with questions, not accusations. Right. Um, and then lastly, I want to read this piece. Uh, Lehman, I know, has wrote uh, a much bigger book about, you know, the, I think it's called The Surprising Offense of God's Love, which is all on this subject of church discipline. But he has a piece uh, here in this book, and I'm just going to read a paragraph, you know, uh, pertaining to church discipline. All this is not just the pastor's job, but it's every member's job. When you and other members of your church live this way, the vast majority of discipline in a church will never travel beyond two or three people. The elders will never hear of it. The body will be working as it should, each part building up the body in love. That's from Ephesians 4. And little by little, from one degree of glory to the next, your congregation will become an embassy that displays the holy love of God. I think it's a good summary of the point of church discipline. And this protocol is helping to, to protect us, to protect you guys. But this is also the main issue, that we protect one another. Um, yeah. Sweet. Ron, do you, do you have any other comments? Um, along the same, those same lines, um, you know, we often hear from the pulpit, right, that, you know, we never, we say, we're saved by grace. And uh, two people would think, well, then let's sin that grace may abound, that's never the case, right? And sin is serious, and sin destroys, and um, the church discipline is a safety, it's kind of like last safety net for the, the person who is in sin to drive them to repentance, and also a safety net for the, the congregation. As far as uh, church membership is a serious deal, right? Uh, and also, we're all responsible for it. So when one of us is in a situation where uh, attention needs to be brought to a specific sin or uh, behavior that's unrepentant and ongoing. Um, let us all lock arms together and uh, make that a priority to drive that person to, again, just that relationship with Christ, that repentance, and that restoration. All right. Get my microphone on. We'll open it up to you guys. Any questions that you have for us on any of the stuff we've talked about today? Chelsea. And if you say it loudly, but I'll try to restate the question. Okay, if somebody reaches the point of excommunication, the scripture says not to eat with them. Is that referring to just the table, or how would the congregation interact outside of the corporate gatherings with that person? Yeah, I think two things come to mind. Number one, uh, yes to your question, that would definitely mean this table. Uh, for, for, I mean, that's a, that's a part of Oh, sorry. Thank you for that. Thanks. Thank you, David. Restating the question. Chelsea says that there's language in the scripture when it comes to excommunication or an excommunicated individual about not even eating with such a person. So what would that mean? What would that look like in the context of our local church yep. to not eat with such a one? How would we go about living that out? Yeah. So my answer is yes to the table. So it means the Lord's table at a minimum. And then the two things that come to mind is number one is that does not mean that this person won't, depending on the, the offense, right? If they're abusive, it's, if, it's, if it's like, if there's physical violence or some type of, then, then no, we're, we're not going to allow them in here. Uh, but if that's not the case and they still join the gathering, it, we together won't have the same type of relationship that we have with each other right now. I mean, when we see that person, we're going to be like, 
you know, it's, it's the elephant in the room every time, right? That's how we would, I mean, this is someone who's tasted and seen, who's covenanted with us, who said that, you know, they're our brother or sister, uh, and then has, is running off in the foolishness and could care anything about what we say or what the Lord says. And so we're going to treat them according to their confession in that way. Now, the other thing is just like Gentiles, just like the world around us, we don't treat them badly, right? So now that person has taken themselves out of the covenant community and put themselves in the world where, yes, I want to have grace and mercy towards my, my friends who don't believe. And at the same time, there's that tension that it's like, no, but you've tasted and seen and you're rejecting it. So it's like if you want to invite them and, and you're trying to really, it's like even if you invite them to your house, the topic of discussion is probably going to be calling them to repentance, even if you do have them over for dinner. But I think the main thing is our relationship is different because yeah. it's not like a it's not like an unbeliever coming in, in here. You know, it's this is someone like I've said three times now that's tasted and seen that's promised with us and is and is turning from that. And is, and is doing very horrible things right. in terms of disobedience and hatred of us and God. And so, yeah. So the, the fact that excommunication carries with it the language and the understanding that you are removed from the fellowship of the saints is what I think would govern us high level in thinking about how to interact with such a person. Like McKenzie's already said, well, I don't need to repeat it. The relationship is fundamentally altered. And it's not that you're not welcome to a service here necessarily except in cases of violence and the like. But our relationship is that we're, like, we're not small talk. We're not, we're not just, hey, man, how's it going? Like nothing's happened. I might do that. That's where it's different than like the non-believing people that I might interact with on a daily basis. I'm kind, warm, talk about whatever just to develop a relationship. That's over when it comes to somebody who's excommunicated because like Mackenzie has said, we've tasted and seen together and covenanted together you know, regarding the heavenly gift and Christ and sin and repentance and all these things. And you have, you have decided that, at least based upon your living, you have decided that you don't want that anymore. And so that's going to be what we talk about. You know? And uh, am I going to have you over to my house? So it kind of depends on what we're discussing. You know? So that's the best answer I would know to give. I, yeah. Rob, any other comments on that? No, and also just from a, a protection standpoint, um, cause often it's not like, well, you just got excommunicated, but Hey, let's go. You know, you're still my friend, right? That there is that rift in the relationship and uh, ignoring that you're typically dealing with somebody. If they're still unrepentant, there's their thinking has been warped either in thinking that my sin is okay or it's sin and, I, and, and it doesn't matter. Or they say it's sin, but I, let me explain to you why it's not. And the more we interact with somebody who's unrepentant and has their, their thinking warped in, in that sense, uh, it can affect you as well. And I've seen that happening in other churches where I'm going to reach out to this person and uh, it, it, that person's view on, on their particular sin ended up affecting this other person's view on their own um, behavior and thinking, oh, that's not sin. And in this particular case, it was this person had been you know, cheated on, on, on his wife and went on and lived with someone else. And this other person kept going and said, well, I'm going to continue to pursue. Well, pursuing that relationship and not handling that issue and bringing it up uh, ended up warping this other person's thinking about their own relationship with their own wife. And really, I mean, this guy is having a great time, right? So that's kind of an extreme example. It doesn't mean that it's always going to be like that. But if you're dealing with somebody who's unrepentant and stubborn in it, uh, chances are it's going to affect you in a negative way uh, more than you affecting them in a positive way. Yeah, they brief, don't want to talk about it. Brief to just 
add to that, I mean, I think the language of 1 Corinthians 5 about removing leaven is a corporate reality, but it's true for the individuals that comprise the body too. Like if we think that our thinking and our posture towards the things of God is not often poisoned by people who have rejected such, we're naive. And that's not to like shelter, you know, ourselves or to like shun people. That's not what we mean at all. But, but it is for the, for the protection of the people here that we would not associate with such people the, the way that we used to, confiding and just laughing and talking and eating and all that because it's not safe. Yeah. Yeah, last, last comment is, uh, is this thing, is it on? Is it dead? Oh, man. No, I didn't have it on. So that's one way that the mic will not work because if you don't have it on. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the last I was going to add is that truth and love. We're not just we're not just being mean, uh, but I think the point is like, uh, yeah, is keeping the truth in mind that this is a person who is very dangerous, and also like, yeah, I'm I'm seeking to love him, but in doing that, I'm like, gonna address the elephant in the room every time. Right. That was that was a good question, Emily yes. Rose. Thank Thanks. you. Well, yeah, so Emily Rose's question, I'm going to restate from a man, David, in the back, and for everybody's benefit. Emily asked, if, what if a person is excommunicated, and after being excommunicated, they decide that they're not a Christian at all, like they're no longer claiming Christ? Then, yeah, I mean, that's a little more difficult. I mean, I think it's case by case, right, for me. Very clear, just to be very clear about our church and how we practice these things, if a person renounces Christ, they're, they're not excommunicated. We treat it like a death. You know, I mean, because you, you, you no longer are claiming Christ, so what would it even mean for us to excommunicate you, right, just to be clear? But if you did have such a case where a person, after being excommunicated, what, when they were excommunicated, they're claiming to be a brother or sister, but then after all this goes down, they're like, I'm not a Christian anymore. I think it's case by case. Like, what is their posture? Are they belligerent? Are they antagonistic? Are they, you know, slandering the church and its authority? Or are they very peaceful in the matter about it? And they're just like, yeah, I just don't think I believe that anymore. That might affect how I would interact. I still would be careful. You know, I know that's a very unhelpful answer. I think what I would say to you is, if that ever occurred in this church, and you in particular are wondering, how do I relate to this individual? That's why you have brothers and sisters and pastors around you to talk it through. Because I don't know that I can come up with every hypothetical right now to give you like really firm counsel. Yeah, happy for these men to speak to that. Yeah, or yeah. anybody else out there, if you've got some wisdom on this, like let's talk together. Well, it's case by case, I think. Because, I mean, sometimes you can't avoid the person. You know, what if it's, you know, a close relative or a child or something like that, exactly. you know? Well, how you not eat with them, right? So, if anything... First thing I'm going to say is this should sober us up about sin, how we always say it's run from it. It destroys you. Even just just discussing this, it overcomplicates your existence in every way possible. So run from it. And if you do sin, run back to Christ and repent. And there's Mm -hmm. grace always for the struggling sinner. Um, But yeah, in that case, I think it it really depends. I think often when people forsake the faith, um, some people can have a very... um, antagonistic 
uh, well, I don't believe in that, you know, but then you're sitting there at the dinner table or whatever, and they just keep throwing jabs at Christianity and the church and the pastor. And you think, well, I thought you didn't believe in this, right? Uh, you seem to really care about something you don't believe. So it could be that, or it could be somebody that, hey, you know, that was a good journey. Yeah, it's not for me. I'm pursuing something else. You know, uh, it's good for you if you want to believe that. You know, that posture, and you have to kind of pursue some relationship because, Maybe they're someone close or an old friend or someone like we're a relative, you know, use wisdom on that one. But I think a lot of a lot of it depends on the posture of that person and also the impact they have in, on you. Anything you want to add or you good? Yeah, I think I was just uh, thinking right off the bat. I, just think it's like, I think it's the battery. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm taking it off. Like I'm, I'm just going to turn it off. We, we all die um, yeah, at this point, I forgot my thought, Emily Rose, so I guess it's not worth saying. We'll just trust the Lord. All right. Emily Rose, sorry that was unsatisfactory, but probably the best. We don't want to overspeak, right? Does anybody have wisdom on that? I mean, that you would like to offer before I, Blake, I see your hand. Alex, do you have something you'd like to offer? Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for that, brother. Good word. Blake. Yeah, so the goal is restoration. Can you discuss a little bit our process of restoration? If it has been successful, we had the awkward conversations of like, Right. No, we do not. So Blake's question is: all right, We've got the protocol in terms of process for discipline, but do we have any kind of protocol for restoring a person that has been removed from the fellowship, in particular? Because obviously, ad- admonition or even suspension temporarily from the table—that person has not been removed from the fellowship, so that's not. Uh, an issue of restoring them to the body here. But the question is really about an, an excommunicated individual. If repentance occurs and they express desire, I want to be like, I, I know I was wrong. The Lord is right. I agree with him, etc. And I'm trusting Christ. Then no, we do not have a formal process outlined. My thoughts on that are going to be, I trust there's a lot of organic interaction that's occurring with members, but certainly like we would do in taking a person in on the front end, just in joining this church in the first place, we're going to be having meetings with that individual as pastors to discuss their repentance, their profession, etc., and then presenting them to the congregation in a meeting of the members for us to consider together, are we going to bring this person back into the membership of Covenant Baptist Church because they were removed from it? So it would basically take place like we would bring in a new member, but there would just obviously be the history around it, and we would seek to lead openly in that as elders, even in considering that person again. Then upon, you know, should this happen, like you've described it, upon that individual being restored to the membership of this church, that would be quite a, a, a members meeting in terms of an opportunity to praise God together, to pray and weep together over this person who, you know, had said, I'm out of here and I'm done with this. Now saying, I know I was wrong, 
and I'm, I'm trusting Christ and I need the church. I mean, that's a Luke 15 kind of thing, right? That would just be my thoughts. Guys? Yeah. Just quickly, I think, too, um, depending on the circumstances, right, it depends is, is a good way to put it. But it's like if, if there's been a lot of, you know, malicious uh, backbiting and division, uh, you know, I'm going to say we're not going to go into that restoration naively. Like we're going to discuss those divisions and the backbiting and the hurt and the double mindedness and, and all that 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 was caused. And um, yeah, so I think that the reason for excommunication would be a big conversation in, you know, the, the restoration or the bringing back on of somebody, not because they're trying to throw sin back in the face, but then also to to realize, like, you know, this means a lot. And yeah, this had a lot of consequence on everyone. And this is a big deal for. And along those lines, I think that in certain situations, probably all, but I'm not going to say all because I'm going to be careful, the individual in question, instead of the elders presenting this person only to the congregation as a potential member, the presentation of the pastors would be accompanied by the, the individual's testimony, I think. Right? Like we would have this individual stand up and testify before the congregation. Here is what occurred. I was removed. Here's where I am now. And I'm seeking restoration. That would be a piece, which is a little bit different than just bringing a person in initially. And, uh, and obviously, restoration is always done by God uh, through the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Um, and we will wrestle, so to speak, with folks who are going through uh, the, the process, so to speak, of church discipline. But past the point of excommunication, uh, the restoration is... 100% left up to God. We will not be reaching out to that person at that point. Um, and also for the elder's sake, to know where your responsibility to an individual ends, right? Otherwise, it's just a never-ending um, yeah, nightmare. It could be, right? Um, and, uh, and if the Lord does the work and these people, uh, sometimes the excommunication can be a restoration, uh, something to be used to restore that person because once they... They lose access to the table, to the to the ordinary means, to the fellowship of the saints, and all of a sudden they find themselves with their sin that they wanted, and and thinking I lost everything else that was good in my life. That will, if that doesn't jolt you to repentance and restoration, then I don't know what will. So, I was going to say, yeah. Did we answer your question? Go follow up. Yes. Similar to the excommunication Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we would handle it with the two-month layover the exact same way, but we would be very clear. We've not done this yet, right? So we would be very clear in communicating ahead of time that this is going to be considered in this members meeting or whatever. I think that we would try to inform the congregation as well as we could so that people come prepared to hear it. And uh, the elders would give testimony, of course, but the individual would give testimony. We would then recuse that individual and discuss it as much as needed. If we needed the individual to answer questions, we could do that. This is not to be unfair to this person um, or require more of them than is necessary, but it had given the fact that there was unrepentant sin that caused them to be removed from this body, it's right. And churches historically have had individuals testify this way. Yeah. Does that answer? Great, Blake. Thank you. Good question.
Good question. McKenzie. Yeah, and Jenny had her hand up. Oh. But I was going to say, I was just saying to remember that after I say what I'm about to say, yeah. Um, to add to that, too, and my assumption is if this person has come back and they haven't been, you know, banned from just entering the building with us uh, and they're around because they they have repented. Um, again, back to like my comments at the beginning, we should be talking to that person. If, if that person's here, it's like we don't avoid them. It's just we keep addressing the elephant in the room. And if that person has repented and, want to be, and wants to be restored, you, you know, you should be talking to them. They will have communicated that and go out to eat and talk about it or, or, or coffee or, uh, you know, whatever you feel comfortable with. But that's, a, that's also, I think, an organic part of the process that, again, we have to take ownership of each other. Uh, and, yeah. Jenny. Yeah. So Jenny's question is in 8.2 for people that have neglected the assembly, who have failed to communicate, etc., that we as the pastors and congregation have the right to then remove that person from the roles as an act of pastoral discipline. Does that mean then like they're not admitted to the table? Does that mean they're not in good standing was your question? So yeah. let me make sure I'm restating it the right way. What does that mean for that person? Basically, yeah. So it's not an excommunication. It would not even be suspension from the table. It is a removal not in good standing in that regard because it is, it is an irregular removal. Given that you have not done, you have violated the church covenant in multiple fronts, right? And so it's not a good thing, but it is not something where if that individual then showed back up, our immediate posture toward them is you've been removed from this body and we're kind of distant with you. My immediate question would be, hey, we haven't seen you in a long time and what's been going on, you know? And so then in having that conversation, I trust reasons would become clear. We could try to understand each other. A person could then be restored to our membership through kind of organic processes, sort of like we were talking about before. Uh, but really the explanation would be like, why did you ghost us for a year, right? And yeah, I'm going to be hesitant in terms of you partaking of the supper and things like that. But were you removed through a formal mechanism of excommunication? No, because we didn't, didn't handle it that way. This is just to protect the church from constantly having people on the rolls that we can't practically care for. You know, And if people have just moved on with their lives, we don't know. Here's the thing. We're not going to excommunicate such an individual because we cannot prove, prove that they are in unrepentant sin. Now, have they neglected the church covenant here? Yeah. But might they be attending elsewhere? Yeah, we don't know. Can't prove it. Might they be in other, some other form of sin? Yeah, they might be. Can't prove it. Can't verify it. And so in, if we can't verify something, we're not going to excommunicate, which is why I would say it's, it's, they're not in good standing, but they've not been excommunicated or barred from the table because it's not a verifiable situation. That would be my answer. Yeah, I think that sums it up. Okay. Does that sufficient, Jenny? Make sense? Gail in the back. Sound man Gail today. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Gail's question is, he completely affirms the biblical testimony of needing multiple witnesses to establish a charge against a person. We all do. But then what about those cases where the offended party is unable to produce a second witness? I mean, a lot of times what you're talking about here, brother, is a marriage situation where one party is offended by, sinned against by another party in the marriage, and it becomes very difficult to prove based upon the testimony of multiple witnesses, what is going down. What you're describing is the bane of every eldership and church's existence in some ways, because we are, we are not omniscient. And what we have to do then is try to conduct processes that will bring to light what needs to be brought to light. If the individual is coming to the pastors of the church saying, this is what's going on in my home, for example, and this needs to be investigated by the elders of the church, our posture if an individual comes to us like that, is to look into the matter and ask about it and begin to have meetings about it. We would do that. And then, depending on how those meetings go, is it possible that we would have some kind of formal process of hearing to establish and acquire testimony? Yes. Is that under the formal process of discipline? Not necessarily. But we would just continue to have meetings of witnesses present to try to, speak, to, try to get to the bottom of the matter. I, I don't know any other way to say it. Because what we would have to do, Gail, in that situation is if we can't corroborate with multiple witnesses, we've got to at least have a number of witnesses present who can agree to what in the world's even going on. Because we as the pastors are not going to put ourselves in that position to litigate, you know, well, this is occurring or this isn't when it's one person's word against another. We can't do that. So it's something that has to be done together, and it's really awkward and hard often. But we would be very careful with that. The only way church discipline process formally would be commenced in such a situation is if we get to a place where a group of people from this church think that process needs to be commenced. That's the only answer I know to give. I yeah, 6.3 also definitely says like when, when two or I get a little nervous reading in front of, in front of people sometimes, but because um, I'm trying to do it too fast. Nonetheless, uh, if in addition to the testimony of one witness, uh, 6.3 says, let's say we don't have to, the elders can say, okay, we're going to look into the matter based upon this one person's uh, testimony. It's like, well, we're going to, you know, do investigation. And if we find an offense, then we do, you know, we begin trying to call into repentance and then may very well, you know, just if, if they don't repent, then we do process. Uh, the elephant in the room is specifically with like emotional abuse within a marriage uh, is, is kind of one of these where it's like, I have no way of finding verifiable evidence except based upon the emotional state of one, which is the one who's bringing the, the offense, right? Uh, this is an impossible, hard, like very scary, if I can use that word, position to be in as a pastor um, and as a young pastor at that, because it's like you, you, have, you have two different testimonies oftentimes. And we are seeking to be extremely direct with the husbands. The husbands are usually uh, the ones who are uh, accused of this and are usually the ones, as the scriptures are clear, that abuse power. Right. Um, and so we are we seek to be direct with husbands. We seek to uh, to call it what it is and to find out. Um, and that's kind of the best way that, that we can, we can really like hit that in the head. Um, we're working behind the scenes with Josh Vallejos, uh, in RCC and, and just trying to, to think better, to get better safety plans, safety, 
um, teams and, and, and for, for women who are abused or whatever. And I mean, this is a, a touchy subject, but this is one that seems to be uh, coming up a lot. And so for that, I think it's like, man, it depends. And we're trying to go slow. We're trying to do the best we can. Uh, and at all costs, it's like we're asking the men to man up and to, to either really assess themselves and understand why their wife is feeling this way. Um, and let's let's look at that or to get help or to, to, to see themselves as an abuser or to yada, yada, yada. So it's, it's very hard. It's very touchy, uh, especially when, yeah, there's two different testimonies. Uh, but specifically, I think that that's a, that's like the, the elephant in the room when it comes to that, you know, maybe something that you were asking. Uh, and I thought it was good to kind of just be transparent and honest about specifically emotional abuse within the marriage. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was a lot. And I mean, just so you guys are aware, we, we as pastors, like he said, we, we've been meeting with Joshua Vallejos from Restoration Counseling Center in trying to talk with him and learn more about just emotional abuse and the reality of it and all those kinds of things. And we will be doing, moving forward, a series of like workshops and different things on this topic. And uh, yeah, so that is, that is real. And I think, Gail, what you're describing to Mackenzie's point, it most often occurs within marriages. There's one party accusing another. The elders take it very seriously. We take it case by case. And we seek to establish an agreed upon assessment of what's going on with witnesses that would know the couple. Um, yeah, because we're not going to proceed unilaterally in cases where there's just no evidence to do that. And at the same time, we want the weak and the people in our congregation who may be abused and preyed upon to be heard and safe. That's the dilemma. Um, pray for pray for all of us. Pray for us that we would have wisdom in such cases. Gail, does that remotely speak to your question? Thanks, man. All right, Blake Rushing. Do does uh, do the individual lay members of the congregation have any role or responsibility in Guarding the table, uh, fencing the table when they are aware of a disciplinary situation. Yeah. Someone's been barred. Is it appropriate yeah. for me to approach fellow members and say, hey, man? Yeah. Yeah. So Blake's question was, I think he spoke loudly enough for everybody to hear, but I'll just reiterate quickly. He said, what responsibility, if any, did the individual members of Covenant Baptist Church have in this, in the case where a person has been, I assume you don't mean excommunication or maybe you do. And then also like if the elders have told a person you ought not come to the table for a season, what responsibility do the individual members of this church have to preclude said individual from doing that? Uh, I would say that we all should feel a sense of responsibility in it. I would just encourage you to be tactful. Don't tackle a person on their way up front. Not that you would ever do such a thing. But, and don't confront them in the service. But I think it would be a very loving and good thing to do to text, call that person, grab coffee that week, whatever, and be like, hey, I noticed that you went to the table on Sunday. It's my understanding that you, you've been told that you ought not do that because of this issue. Um, Let's talk about it. Why did you come to the table? I think that's entirely right and good. Are you a pastor of the church? And do you have any formal authority to speak as a pastor might? Like, why are you defying the, you know, the censure handed to you by the elders? No, you wouldn't speak in those terms, but you could still ask even that question. Like the elders have, have told you this, have censured you for this reason. And you came to the table. Can you tell me why? I think that's good. Just in member to member watching over each other. Yeah. Yeah. Any comments there, brothers, on that? Uh, slightly related 
to it. Um, and just to put it on people's radars, I mean, w with this is not something that we're saying, hey, now everybody has the, the right to meddle in everyone's lives. And the reason I bring that up is because, um, I don't know, some people may have come from churches where that was a reality. I know I've seen folks, individuals that come from that where everybody's examining and just jumping at each other. Uh, that's not going to be the case, uh, or that's not what we aim to be. And I know that's not what you're uh, bringing up, Like, but um, but again, with trying to encourage one another, that is good. That's not getting your nose in someone else's business, right? Especially with something that is known. And as brothers and sisters, instead of thinking, well, you know, I noticed that, but I'm sure the elders will handle it. Uh, you know, if you see it uh, in love and with tact, go talk to your brother or, or your sister. And uh, we should never have an attitude of like, well, sticking your nose in my business. Obviously, if you have the relational capital, you know, if they never say hello to that person. The first time you go and talk to them is to, you know, whack them over something, you know, use tact and, and, and best judgment as far as that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, at the end of the day, yeah, we're not going to be tackling people. Um, and then, so when it comes to the table, you know, if they take in an unworthy manner at the end of the day, it's, it's between them and the Lord. And, uh, but yeah, combined with Justin's answer and Rob's answer, I think that, that gives a good basis of like, Again, same thing, a person who's been excommunicated or uh, church disciplined is going to be uncomfortable here. And I think that's the key. It's just like, it's the elephant in the room. We're addressing it. We're pressing it. We're, you know. And last related comment to this, there could be a situation where an individual might not even be excommunicated from CBC, but let's say an individual, the, the elders wrote or spoke to that individual and said, we, on the basis of this, are, are not going to permit you to the table here at CBC for a period of time. Um, that individual, of course, cannot attend here and go attend elsewhere and take the supper. But that is outside of anything that we can control, right? And like McKenzie just said, that is where you do just trust the Lord that as pastors, even as a congregation, in the case of excommunication, that we have done our duty. We have discharged our duty faithfully before God, and we now leave it to Him. You know, yeah. Emily Rose. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. So two questions. One is Emily Rose was mentioning that Alex sometimes in very difficult counseling cases can get objective, like third party outside counsel. Do we have mechanisms for that? I mean, we have all kinds of organic mechanisms for that and we do it organically already. I mean, we, we consult with other pastors of a like mind on a regular basis on a number of things that have gone on in this church and we're always discreet, don't convey detail names, et cetera. Um, but is there a formal mechanism for that? Not, not super formal. We are going to be continuing to talk as a church about an entity called the Grace Reform Network that we do hope to become a part of, which would provide a church in the same network who would adhere to the same confession, provide a number of elderships that could be able to 
to step in and assist and give counsel in situations like that. So that's one of the benefits of associating with churches uh, of a similar confessional ilk. Yeah. So we're looking for that, I think, in more formal ways. It already exists organically, and we do it. Your second question from Emily Rose is, and I'm happy, I'm happy to give the other guys chance to speak on this too. The second question is, okay, well, what about that case that you mentioned where one or one of you or maybe multiple of you guys just shouldn't sit on the, the court because of some real conflict of interest or whatever? Yeah, I mean, in that situation, if we didn't have enough elders to hear the case, then we would probably have to consult with other elderships and determine what they would do in such a matter. And I can't speak with definitive clarity on how we would move forward in that situation. Um, the reason, too, in that document, it does say that you need to demonstrate cause for an elder to not sit on the court. And cause needs to be legitimate that I think anybody could objectively look at and say, yeah. It doesn't need to be like, well, I don't like him. You know, that's not, that's not sufficient. Um, it needs to be demonstrable and clear that this is the reason why he should not sit on this court and should recuse himself. Um, so I assume that that's going to put some certain barrier up. And also something you can continue to pray for, for our church is, I mean, we pray for this all the time. Uh, I mean, we want to see more men become elders. So the eldership grows because that also is a help in this. If two of us can't sit, but there's six elders, that's a very different situation than what we have today. So. And just yeah, just to add to that, obviously these situations can always get incredibly complicated and in ways that you think, how on earth are we even dealing with this and get this complicated? But in general, that's what we aim. If there's a uh, case of discipline or process started, it's going to be on something that is ongoing, unrepentant, clear and demonstrable, right? So sometimes this doesn't matter. Well, I don't want Justin to be in it because he didn't, I don't, you know, he doesn't like me or whatever. Like, if the evidence is there and the attitude is there toward the demonstrable, clear sin, um, you know, you can always move on with, with process and even having even a higher body, ecclesiastic body to appeal to in case, you know, you don't like the outcome of the, the decisions from the elders. You know, what is clearly sin is clearly sin. So there's nothing really to appeal to. Um, because, you know, Scripture is the final authority when it comes to those things. So that's what we, when we talk about discipline, is case of clear, demonstrable sin. Obviously, these things can always get super sticky and complicated, but uh, we aim to use this, um, as we said, as a scalpel and not for everything uh, as a method to address any situation, right? So this is a comment that's related. This came into my mind. I just want to say this today. The process document that we've given, I think everybody's clear on what it is and what it isn't and its formal process and the like. You might be sitting here today thinking like, my goodness, this is a lot and this document is substantial and robust and our church is still pretty young and small. All that's true. Um, we as leaders are seeking to serve our body, not just for today, not just for the immediate present, but also for 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now when we're all dead. You know, we would want protocol to be in place that will serve us well as we grow. And so a number of the things this document included that may seem formal and more formal than a church of our size might require, that's the reasoning behind it. And I hope that's clear. Um, it's clarity, it's protection, but it also will serve us well as we get bigger. So just a, just a thought that I 
felt I should share. So, all right, we've been here a little while. You guys have been great. These have been good questions. Anything that you really want to ask before we leave? And obviously, you can pursue us individually as you need to. Or pursue the group as you need to. All right. Got to be comfortable with awkward silence, guys. Okay. I'm going to close this in prayer. Very good. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity. We thank you that we could consider these matters together. These things are heavy, and we pray that you would continue to guide our church and give us wisdom. We pray that you would protect us from sin, protect us from division, and we pray that you would continue to unite our hearts around your son. We pray we'd love each other well, and we pray that even these protocol that we've considered and church discipline as we've talked about it today would be used well here at CBC as a tool of your love and as a tool of your protection. And so we pray for these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.